everyone. Welcome to the Horrors Podcast. Welcome back. Yeah, I'm Elise. I am Shay. Was good. <laughs> I think I'm good. You think? I hope. Quarantine's hard, man. I know it is really hard. I'm really starting to feel it. Well, honestly, who hasn't been feeling it since it started? But now that it's getting cold. Are you napping more than you usually do? Oh, no. Well, I nap like it's my job. Napping is my vice. I could nap in any weather at any time of day for any length of time, except if it's less than two hours. It has to be at least two or three hours of napping. But I feel like a COVID nap kind of has to amplify a seasonal nap. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like it has to double down almost. Well, I think that since everything with teaching is super stressful at this time, I don't I don't nap like a baby like I used to. I am very stressed out. Sometimes I wake up with night sweats. It's so dramatic. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's really dramatic. But, um, you know, it's still, it's still going along. It, in some ways, it feels good to be productive again because I felt like I was purposeless for a good period of time. But it is also really stressful because there's still such a degree of not really knowing what's going on. What about you? Are you napping a lot? I never nap. You know this. Yeah, I know. I am not a napper. Okay, so you're still not a napper. I am still... COVID (laughs) has not made me a napper. Okay, just checking. To my best attempts, I just don't (laughs) think I'll ever be a napper. Only if I'm sick or severely sleep deprived can I really nap. I think that's a good thing. Is it though? I mean, I don't know. I feel like I... I don't waste a lot of time, but I feel like I certainly could be doing other things with my time other than napping. I just nap a lot. I I feel deep in my heart. It's what I love to do. And I have a cat and I think having a cat makes me nap a lot because he's old and all he wants to do is sleep and he's so cuddly. Speaking of cats, your cat is finally... She doesn't like it when I sleep and maybe that's why I don't nap is because I watch her nap and I detest her because she gets... She gets to reap the benefits of the havoc that she puts on me in the nighttime. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. like she woke me up every hour on the hour as if she was a fucking newborn. You're a whole six <laughs> years old, Jade. <laughs> fucking quit it. Act like an adult, damn it. I know. Honestly. So did you have an easy time napping after watching your first slasher this weekend? Okay, it was actually a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. I only involuntarily screamed once. When was that? When the body... Oh, Bob. Yeah. Not the famous scene, but when he like flung forward in the closet... Yeah, like haunted house style. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was the only time I screamed. I thought that was really good. (laughs) For me, I thought that was really good. One scream for one of the most important, renowned horror films, an iconic film. But anyway, I mean, obviously, it is a little bit dated. It's like 40 years old. It is over 40 years old. And that's why (laughs) when you were looking, when you were after Elise and I watched the movie, we watched it last evening. And (laughs) she was looking up and doing some research. And she's like, oh. I think I found a spoiler. I'm like, Elise, I don't think you can find a spoiler for a movie that's 42 years old. I think we're past spoiler territory. And at this point, we're just, I don't know. We're an expiration date. I don't know what territory we're in anymore. Yeah, Shay tried to explain to me the Halloween timeline. And I I really don't get it. So for our intents and purposes, we really are just going to be focusing on the first movie. I mean, we can mention, I guess, some of the other things to come. You are probably more equipped to talk about those. I just know Halloween as a standalone film without any of the alternate universe verses that come after the first film because apparently there are many timelines there's at least four if we're talking like remakes and reboots and revamps and all of the re's re re (laughs) (laughs) not rihanna (laughs) yeah i know but yeah so we're talking about the original halloween with everyone's favorite yogurt commercial star jamie lee curtis I love and adore Jamie Lee Curtis. She has my heart, especially because of her starring role in Freaky Friday, also starring Lindsay Lohan. I think that movie came out in 2004. And honestly, that certainly stands the test of time. Maybe even a little bit better than Halloween. I don't know. I think I think we, I think we just exposed our age because I, I do believe that was my introduction to Jamie Lee Curtis as well, was Freaky Friday. And I, I just remember, what is Lindsay Lohan's character's name? Katie? 
or with, oh. like, with like a D. It was like super like. No, no, no. That's that's Mean Girls. Fuck. No, you're... Katie with a C. Katie like C A D Y. Yeah. In Mean Girls, I don't know her name in Mean Girls or a uh, Freaky Friday. I don't know. I just know I wanted to like be her. You know, like she was like a fucking punk ass like, rocker. Was it like Sam or I don't know? We'll have to come something back to androgynous. Yeah, probably. yeah, yeah. I think so. Definitely a little edgy. I'm going to look it up because I need to know. You just anyway, need to know. Jamie Lear Curtis, I, I was telling Shay, I think she deserves an Academy Award for her role <laughs> in Freaky Friday because she was so good and so fun. Oh, okay. It's 2003. Her name is Anna. Oh, that's a curveball. I wasn't expecting that. That's right. Now that I know it, I can't believe I forgot. I can believe I forgot because that's not the kind of name I was expecting to be coming out of that Avril Lavigne looking I think punk that ass was rocker. One of the things that perhaps the two of them conflicted on. The name? Well, you know, expectations for a, a daughter named Anna as opposed to a daughter named Derek. <laughs> I don't know. That sounds so of all the daughters named Derek you can name off the top of your head. <laughs> yeah, I watching Halloween. I thought Jamie Lee Curtis looked and sounded exactly the same as she did in Freaky Friday, which well, was a trip for me. <laughs> it, it's interesting, too, because Jamie Lee Curtis does have a more masculine name in Halloween, if you think about it. Lori? Yeah. I didn't think about it. I don't know how to explain that the spelling of her name is just a little masculine. With like the it's I? Not, like, it's not like it's Laura or Lauren mm-hmm. or I'm even thinking of the n- other names of the other women in the movie, right? Oh, yeah. Like Annie, like Linda. Annie and Linda. Yeah, absolutely. That's like unquestioned. But, but Lori doesn't seem to be something that is inherently as feminine. And she's not really inherently feminine, especially in comparison to the other women in the movie. Anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah. Right. So do you just want to like talk about like your initial reactions, like expectations versus reality of going into I think, Halloween? I think I said my initial reaction. I was proud of myself. There were a couple moments that made me laugh, like Michael Myers peering through the sheets <laughs> outside on the line, the car driving really slowly, some of the, you know, dated aspects of the film. But otherwise, I, th- I thought it was good. Like, I could understand why it made such a splash, having been, like, the first of its kind, and how scary that would have been. I think that being in a generation after that, I think I'm a little bit more inundated with those types of storylines. So the novelty there kind of wore off for me by the time I got to see the movie. But I, I thought it was good, and, and I can see why it has such a following. I like the way you put it, because I do think, especially by the time that Halloween was sat in front of me as a movie, I was a little unimpressed because I grew up with Ghostface from Scream kind of being like my titular slasher. Mm -hmm. And then with more research, you know, my my favorites grew into be like Freddy from Nightmare on Elm Street, whereas Michael Myers never really seemed that threatening. And I think that's because I was so used to like the 90s quippy humor that... (laughs) really comes with, you know, Freddy Krueger and Ghostface, a lot of that kind of like cat and mouse toying around that conversation bit that comes with it. And Michael was always just this like tall dude who stood there. So I really wasn't that level of impressed. But when you think about it from the context that there really wasn't anything like it prior to 78, then obviously your appreciation for it has to grow and your appreciation for Jimmy Lee Curtis's Laurie Strode has to grow interns because she's really one of the first titular final girls but yeah you know i think yesterday when we watched it it was like the first time in years that i had watched the original all the way through so it was nice to have that level of refresher but in case anyone's listening doesn't have the faintest idea who michael myers (laughs) is halloween is about a babysitter who is stalked by a patient who escapes a psychiatric facility after he killed his older sister when he was six years old. Mm -hmm. So he returns to his hometown. 15 years later. 15 years later. So I'm guessing at the time, if we're doing the math, he was 21 when all of this was going on. Mm -hmm. But essentially, he starts stalking down Lori and other babysitters in the neighborhood on Halloween evening and taking them out one by one. Yeah, that's basically it. 
further continuations of the Halloween lore, you come to find out that Laurie Strode is Michael Myers' little sister and he wants to kill her for that reason. Depending on what timeline you're looking at, that is the truth. That's not the truth. But like Elise said earlier, for the, <laughs> for the sake of this movie, Michael Myers is just a guy <laughs> being a dude and just going off and trying to take out just the babysitters. Just a dude. And I think dude stuff. A guy being a bro. And I think the original title of this was going to be like the babysitters or something. Something that was the in babysitter reference. Babysitter killers? Some killer? I don't know. It was going to be something in reference to that. So ended up being Halloween. And I think that probably made it more longstanding than like the babysitters club. Or is that, are those children's books? Yeah. I was literally thinking about that. You read my mind because when you said the babysitter killers, I was thinking that sounds like a book series and it's that so cool. Also probably from the seventies. I have no idea. I I stuck to the goosebumps books when I was a kid. I did not. (laughs) And scary stories to tell in the dark. (laughs) Oh, the girl with the green ribbon. Yeah. Changed my life. Amazing. Oh, and the story with the high beams. I'm totally getting sidetracked. Yeah. (laughs) But this literally ruined my life. I think about this all the time. There was a story about somebody driving home real quick, guys. There was a story. Somebody was driving home. They're on these rural roads, whatever. There's a car behind them. They notice that the car is following them and the car starts flashing their high beams. And this goes on for a while and the person starts getting freaked out and uh, the following continues, et cetera, et cetera. Next thing you know, the high beams stay on. Very scary. So finally, the person pulls up in their driveway, runs out of the car, runs to the front door. And the person who had been following them jumps out of their car and is saying, let me explain, let me explain. And it turns out that there was a killer in the backseat of the person's car. And so the person saw the person and kept putting on their flash beans to flash beans. <laughs> <laughs> They're naughty beans. <laughs> They're naughty beans. Uh, their flash beams. Wait, high beams. Have I been calling them flash beams the whole time? I have no idea. I, I blacked out. Cannot stand myself so they've been putting on their high beams so the person would be exposed every time they tried to kill the person anyway are you sure that was in scary stories to tell in the dark or is that just like an urban legend i don't know i feel like i i remember reading it either way you can just cut this all out no 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 no. i actually think it's fairly relevant because of the way that annie dies Mm, so true okay well let's talk about let's introduce our lady right 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 Okay. The story opens up with first person point of view shot of somebody outside of a suburban looking home, them looking in the windows and seeing a couple macking on each other Mm -hmm. on the couch. They eventually take their party to the bedroom and you see the killer enter the house, pick up a knife. They hide behind some sort of banister as the boyfriend leaves, which I also found like super interesting. Like, did he let the boyfriend leave? Or did the boyfriend just happen to, like, get out in the nick of time? He was standing there watching the boyfriend for a little bit. He could have jumped on him. Maybe because we later find out the killer is a six-year-old boy. Maybe he felt more physically threatened by an older boy. So he maybe didn't make the jump at that time, just saved it for a sister. But I don't know. That's a really good question. Either way, boyfriend's a minute man. He leaves. (laughs) It literally is, I mean... Not a long time. Like maybe two minutes. It is wild. It's a very quick coital. And he is quick to leave because when we first see him at the top of the stairs coming down after the deed, he's pulling on his shirt. (laughs) He didn't even put on his shirt in the bedroom. He just... It's in such a hurry. I know. Anyway. Either way. We digress, but... (laughs) Killer killer ascends the stairs, sees Judith, who we come to find out is michael's older sister surprise it is michael myers as a six-year-old boy who is the point of view shot and judith is sitting on her vanity totally topless yes she is wearing nothing but underwear and is just combing her hair in Mm -hmm. the vanity and the camera i would say centers her nudity centers her breasts and michael uses the kitchen knife and murders his sister Mm -hmm. he stabs her in the chest Yes, and the last lingering shot is fixated on the depths. So Mm -hmm. then Michael leaves the house. He is unmasked by a neighbor or a police officer. I don't know. His parents, his parents. Is it his parents? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They come home and they say, Michael? 15 years later, you find out that he went to some sort of psychiatric facility. And then we are positioned with Dr. Loomis, who is supposedly his 
has been his psychiatrist for the past 15 years. Apparently, Michael hasn't said a word in 15 years. So I don't know how good of a psychiatrist Dr. Loomis is. <laughs> um, and then a nurse who is driving Dr. Loomis to the psychiatric facility because I guess they're transferring Michael that evening. I don't know why this nurse is escorting him, but that is the case. They descend upon the psychiatric facility and they start seeing a bunch of the psychiatric patients milling about. There has been some form of jailbreak. Mm-hmm. And what I noticed about this scene specifically is the nurse is so adamant to like, let's just drive to the door. Like, mm-hmm. can we just get out of this weird side field that we have found ourselves in mm-hmm. and just get to the door of the facility? But Loomis is like, quiet woman and jumps out Ugh. and starts like finicking with this gate. I don't know what he's doing, mm-hmm. but in the time that it takes for Loomis to be messing with this gate and trying to figure out what's going on, Michael Myers leaps like a fucking animal on the top of the vehicle, grabs the nurse, tries like grabbing at her face. The nurse exits the vehicle. Michael takes the vehicle and Michael is on his way back to Haddonfield. Exactly. I do like that you pointed it out because the nurse, and I I don't know if she has a name. She's very gorgeous. She's wearing full face of makeup, perfect blonde hair. So she seems sensual, even though we don't really know who she is, but she's smart. She is reading the situation enough to know that this isn't right. Also, another thing, it's raining outside. So when they pull up and it's nighttime and they see a bunch of patients milling about in the grass, I cannot believe that Dr. Loomis doesn't know automatically what is going on. I don't know if he's just trying not to scare her or if he really doesn't know that there's a sort of jailbreak. I mean, what kind of facility lets their patients roam around in the nighttime in a rainstorm? The thing is, <laughs> this nurse does not end up being a consequential character in this movie, but is it that she is intelligent or is it that she is a woman and is like, I am not getting out of this fucking vehicle when it is raining, it is dark, and there are a bunch of unstable men afoot? Well, I mean, I don't imagine anybody would want to get out of the vehicle. Dr. Loomis did. I know, but Loomis is, I didn't love him. Uh, no. <laughs> The entire time he's a creep. Like he, he is, is a creep throughout this entire movie. Yeah, like when he scares those kids. I but, mean, that was kind of funny. Yeah, he enjoyed himself. Okay. So then we never see her again. Okay. So then we have our the three ladies that we see most of the time and obviously Laurie is the one we see the most. I thought it was interesting when we were watching Shay pointed out to me right away when we first see Laurie that she is wearing clothes head to toe. She has stockings. She has loafers. She has a turtleneck. She has a cardigan. The only skin exposes her hands and her face. So right away, we we really get a sense that she is a wholesome, quote unquote, good girl. Also, her stockings are white. The colors she's wearing are very light um, and muted. So again, if we're kind of paying attention to that color symbolism, there's a lot of indicators of a sense of, quote unquote, purity here. And they do a lot to build her as this pure character. She then runs into Tommy, who is a boy that she babysits. He's all excited about Halloween night. Can we make popcorn? Can we watch movies? Can we carve pumpkins? And she's like, yes, yes, yes. Like she is. (laughs) So you're seeing now that they have a good relationship and that she knows this kid well, that she babysits him often. This is what she spends a lot of her time doing. And It's a lot of the reason that her friends tease her is that she babysits all the time. They're kind of mean to her. Her friends kind of (laughs) suck. I'll say that. I'll say that. Her friends kind of suck. And they even make it sound like a bad thing. Like, I'm sure you have so much money saved up for all all those babysitting that you do. It's like, yeah, girl, get it. Like, (laughs) what are you doing, Linda? What are you doing, Annie? I mean, granted, like, these are more social girls living that quote-unquote typical teenage experience and Lori's not so that's not to say that one is right or wrong but it's just like last I checked having a wad of cash you know (laughs) you know from your babysitting gigs isn't anything to complain about exactly I would love a wad of cash right now (laughs) she gets to school and she's sitting in class and there's like a typical horror movie classroom scene where whatever the teacher's saying is probably going to end up being somewhat relevant to the rest of the plot. So the teacher is talking about fate a lot. I'm not sure exactly what work the teacher is referencing. You get the feel that it's an English class or a writing class or a history class. Mm -hmm, Definitely Um, something. A liberal arts, a humanities, if you will. And they're talking about fate a lot. They say whatever action he took, he is destined to his own fate. 
fate is immovable, fate is unchanging. So you're hearing a lot about how fate is inescapable. And, you know, I'm thinking about that a couple of ways. I'm thinking about, is that a hint that Laurie and Michael are infinitely tied, that she she's never going to really be able to escape him, that Michael's nature is just to be violent, he can't escape his own fate, that Laurie's always meant to survive spoiler alert there's a lot of different ways that it could be read but either way she's kind of daydreaming looks out of the window and sees michael like staring at her through the classroom window but which, if, by the way there's no way he would be able to see her through that window how does he know what classroom she's in exactly and don't classrooms even back then don't they have like tinted windows for that reason uh, or maybe not even back no. then i don't know i feel like there were blinds i don't know either way i don't buy it michael <laughs> Also, either way, of course, Jamie Lee Curtis is daydreaming. She oh, gets yeah. called on <laughs> yeah. and she answers the question that, like it's no big deal. So the movie wants you to know she is not lazy. She is mm-hmm. smart. Even when she is has her head in the clouds, she's on top of her game. Super grounded, for sure. So then school ends and Tommy's getting picked on by a bunch of bullies. And then there's another Michael sighting for some weird reason. Michael is making himself known all mm-hmm. over the damn place. Michael is showing sure. up all over Haddonfield. He is driving cars. He is mm-hmm. showing up in hedges, in <laughs> in laundry sheets. In, he is all over the damn place. Like he is just flitting he knows around. How to get around. He knows his way around town. Uh-huh. After school, we meet Lori's friends. Mm-hmm. First, we meet Linda. She's blonde, bubbly. Like quintessential high school girl. A cheerleader. Oh, yes. A cheerleader. She's talking about the dance that is going to be the night after this one. She's played by PJ Souls. Other significant roles. She was in Carrie, The Devil's Rejects, and a voice cameo in a sequel to Halloween in 2018. So, like, I guess the most recent one. She was, like, doing the school announcements, and it was, like, her voice or something like that. Movies do stuff like that. I know. It's amazing. Lori forgets her book. She says, oh, shoot, I forgot my chemistry book. And then, of course, the girls tease her. I forget my chemistry book every day. I forget my math book every day. I forget my history book every day. So that's sort of teasing Lori about her academic pursuits continues. And uh, Linda continues talking about the dance the next night, seeing her boyfriend, uh, the plans that they're going to have for this Halloween night, and things of the like. Annie eventually joins them and... Both Linda and Annie are smoking cigarettes. Lori's not. Lori's kind of positioned like outside of them. Like she's kind of like on the end. I think there's even some physical space between like even in the way they're walking. Lori's either like a little ahead of them or a little behind them. I I noticed that. But Annie is characterized to kind of just be this brash presence. She's joking around. She's confrontational. She's really the one that won't let it go that Lori isn't interested in boys or is babysitting all the time or doesn't have a date to the dance. So the two of them are kind of like joking with Lori and saying Lori should just go ask somebody on a date or ask somebody to the dance. And Lori says something like, oh, I could never do that. Mm-hmm. One of them asks like, why don't you ever go on dates? And Lori's like, guys think I'm too smart. Yes. Yes. And I liked that because it's not a lack of desire to date. And you kind of see throughout the movie, it's a little bit of a lack of confidence. Mm-hmm. She says afterwards, oh, I could never do that. Just like ask a boy out on a date whereas linda and annie are definitely the type to um Mm -hmm. rule a sadie hawkins you know yeah a hundred percent even though that line and i love that line boys think i'm too smart it does show a note of confidence at one point when Lori asks annie she says what are you gonna wear to the dance tomorrow night annie says i didn't know you thought about things like that Lori." And of course, again, these are high school girls. I mean, they're sexualized in a million ways throughout the film. But I feel like that line really takes Lori out of that desirable frame. I didn't know you thought about things like that, Lori. Mm. It really kind of solidifies her in this sort of smart girl, conservative to herself trope. So even though she does display confidence in her intellect and she is pretty set and doing her babysitting. She lets her friends think they're funny. She goes along with it, right? So she explains confidence in that way, but she really is not meant to be seen at all as a desirable person, I think. And even then, too, Linda breaks off from them on the walk home and Lori sees Michael again. Mm-hmm. Um, this time he's standing behind a hedge and she's fearful. 
And Annie, you know, kind of makes a joke of it where Annie like rushes ahead to the hedge and is like, oh, he wants to take you out tonight. Mm. Come get your man. And of course, no one's there. But even then, it's just like, Annie doesn't even think that Lori can even see boys at this point mm, because such a good point. Like boys aren't even in her purview. Mm-hmm. And it's not until Lori admits that she may have a crush on Ben Tramer that Annie really like sinks her teeth into that. Mm. And there's a couple ways that you can be looking at that where Annie's just trying to like be a good friend and get Lori to, you know, socialize a little bit more and not take herself so seriously, but it's also a little bit of a, like an invasion of her privacy mm-hmm. and a little bit and a lot of bit of overstepping because Annie ends up calling Ben Tramer, tells Ben Tramer that Lori likes him and wants to take him to the dance the next evening and he accepts. Thinking about it now, I feel like Annie and Linda's traits are scripted in a way to make them seem negative. Like half of the time we're talking about Annie, I'm thinking to myself, she sounds like so much fun. How come she's not obviously so much fun. It's as though these traits of vapid or rude are intertwined with this sort of body confident energy that Linda and Annie portray. And it kind of cramps, and I'm kind of using air quotes, it sort of like cramps Lori's style. And there's that connection that's made there. And and I don't think that's helpful. It's not helpful, but it's also the way that Annie goes about it is pretty much saying like, you are not a girl unless you're more like me. Mm, you are not a girl unless you're talking about boys all the time. Exactly. Like Annie defines her femininity by her desirableness, mm-hmm. by her social engagements, mm-hmm. by her, you know, sneaking out and the mm-hmm. drinking and and the dances and stuff like that. That's kind of how she defines success navigating these high school waters. And she doesn't see Lori as succeeding in doing that. Right. So you have to look at it as, is she trying to help Lori for the sake of trying to get her into this space because you see throughout the movie too like while Lori's babysitting Tommy throughout the evening that she's looking out the window a lot you could argue that she's looking for the boogeyman because she keeps seeing the shape and Tommy keeps seeing the shape but you also see her looking across the way at the Wallace house which is where Annie's babysitting and Annie's like on the phone with her boyfriend the entire time and Linda's stopping by with Bob and Mm -hmm. I think she feels like she's missing out Absolutely. She does have quite a longing look in her eyes as she looks across at them. So they get home, they get changed. Annie and Lori are both babysitting on the same block across the street from each other. So they're going to drive together. On the drive over, they smoke pot together. Mm-hmm. I was curious that they included this because if they really wanted Lori to seem as virginal or as pure as they did, and granted, at this point, the final girl doesn't have rules because the final girl doesn't really exist mm, quite yet. John Carpenter, who's the director of Halloween, has said that he did not set out to make Lori a intentional foil of her not pure friends. He tried to write teenagers as he saw teenagers acting. And there are some teenagers who do not party. And there are some teenagers who work a lot. Mm -hmm. And there are some teenagers who drink excessively and have sex. And the reason that Lori survives is not because she is morally brighter than these folks, but it's actually because she isn't as distracted with all of the teenage proclivities. And she's actually looking around and sees the shape. The shape is always there, but mm-hmm. I think, in especially in the beginning, there's definitely more of a supernatural feel. I mean, he kind of has a supernatural feel throughout the series, but because right. he's always there and then he's how? not there. Yeah, how is he there? How does he know where I am? How is he here again? Where is he going to be next? What I found so funny about them smoking pot is, first of all, Annie's father is the sheriff in town, and they pull up to the scene of a robbery, and the (laughs) one who is freaking out about getting caught for smoking pot is not the sheriff's daughter, but Lori. Lori's like, oh my God, he's going to smell it. Oh my God, like, what's going on? Oh, he totally caught me. He totally caught me. But... How bold does Annie have to be where she's just going to hotbox the vehicle? <laughs> yeah, they would leave. And then drive in front of the scene of a robbery and say, like, roll down the window and be like, hey, dad. She is. She is a badass. There are some parts of her that I love so much. But kind of going back to what you said earlier about interesting that they had Lori do some smoking. She is not good at smoking. <laughs> 
She's not good at smoking. She is really, really bad at it. So even though they show her trying to smoke this blunt, she is coughing. She is distraught. She's holding it in a very kind of tense, taunt way. We clearly get the sense that this isn't something she partakes in often. So even though she is smoking, she still kind of maintains a level of innocence with it. So I think that that is important to note as well. So they get to their respective babysitting locations. Annie is babysitting Lindsay Wallace, who is across the street from Lori, who is babysitting the boy Tommy. And Linda is off with Bob, her boyfriend, somewhere. And at some point is destined to land at the Wallace house to hang out with Annie and her boyfriend, Paul, while Lori presumably shoulders all of the children for the evening yes so that her friends can party she's a very also maternal character in that way as well oh yes i have thoughts about that later mm-hmm. so the night begins and Lori and annie are kind of like playing phone tag back and forth and so begins <laughs> Wait, I- the hot mess <laughs> express that is annie for the rest of the film because <laughs> annie spends the rest of this film With no pants. (laughs) She, very early on in the night, spills what we later learn is hot butter all over herself. But really, it looks like it really wasn't that big of a deal. Lori and Annie are on the phone. (laughs) Annie's making popcorn at the Wallace residence. And this is on the phone is when Annie shares with Lori that she talked to Ben Tramer and he got really excited to take her to the dance tomorrow. And Lori's very upset with Annie. Yeah, I don't blame her. No, I don't blame her either. But this is where I like what you said earlier about the way that we're supposed to see Annie. We're supposed to see her as mean spirited. But think back to high school, like everyone's had a time where their best friend kind of crossed the line for what they <laughs> thought was your benefit. Like they mm. stole your phone and texted your crush oh, or they like point. Snapchatted and just be like, you should talk to so-and-so more. You know what I mean? Like right. there was, when was there not a time where your best friend like really fucking put their body <laughs> on the line to be like, she likes you. Oh my God. So like, I have been, I have been that Exactly. Friend. <laughs> right. So like in that way, like we can't really hate Annie that much, especially no. because Lori is so sheepish, but you really mm-hmm. do see that Lori is very uncomfortable with the fact that right. Annie took it upon herself to tell Ben Tramer that she had a crush on him. So during this conversation, Annie spills hot butter all over her shirt and pants. And immediately commences to take off her shirt. Which we see she's not wearing a bra, which I thought was interesting. I thought she was. No, no bra. Oh. When they show her taking off her shirt, she's totally barebacked, which I think is, I don't know, maybe because she was meeting up with her boyfriend later. She wanted to, I don't know. Free the nipple. Who cares? Yeah, I love that. I don't really know. I guess in my head, I would think in 1978, bras were like a must. I thought she was wearing a bra, but I thought she's she not. took that off too. Oh, why would she do that? I don't know. Maybe it's seeped through the clothes. Well, anyway, she also takes off her pants and she puts on this oversized white button-up shirt, which is like the quintessential outfit that every girl wears in every movie when she just had sex, which I thought was very interesting. Exactly. Like <laughs> That's the thing. Like She strips down in front of these two bay windows. <laughs> yes. Lights on, dark outside, but also bearing all. The 70s, different time. buddy thought about that kind of shit. Yeah, different time. So either way, she strips down and she makes it a priority that she needs to do a load of laundry at this house because she, I guess, is going to go see Paul and that's the only outfit change you brought. So she Mm -hmm. immediately goes into the backyard where there is a shed where the washer and dryer is. And Elise and I talked about this for a long time. Like, was that a 70s thing? I I didn't look into that, but I've never seen anything like that. I thought maybe if the house was small, they just built a shed in the back for laundry facilities. I could see houses doing that. Maybe like if they were built early on, they didn't have a place for, I don't know. I don't know. Long story short, (laughs) they make a big production of her starting this laundry and then getting stuck trying to climb out the window of the shed. And at this point, she's pretty much stuck in doggy position until Lindsay comes to like save her. Bless Lindsay. She, Lindsay definitely gives off an air of kind of having her shit together. She's six. Uh, Exactly. Which really makes Annie look like she doesn't know what the hell she's doing. We love Annie, but she's a hot mass express this entire 
She really is. But also, of course, Michael Myers, we can see, is kind of circling around the shed. So it seems like Annie is quickly running out of time, but she does not perish in those moments. So it just kind of serves as, I think, suspense. But she does double down on the sex because at this point, Paul calls the Wallace residence Mm. and... Paul had gotten grounded for something and that's why Annie ended up babysitting but she's but he was like hey babe I can sneak out but you got to come pick me up. So she's on the phone with Paul back door wide open. Pants have not been acquired at this point still wearing <laughs> the loose button up and she kind of starts doing some light sexting over the phone where a lot of flirtation. I wrote oh, down yeah. the quote. Mm-hmm. He's mm-hmm. like, what are you thinking about? And she's like, I think about lots of things. Let's stop talking about them and start doing them. So she yeah is ready wait there's also there's another thing that i saw oh my god what does she say she says she says she says she says oh um she was talking about being stuck in the window and he makes fun of her and she says i've seen you stuck in plenty of other positions which is like you're 16 i mean like girl i mean like (laughs) all for being adventurous but like high school sex sucks most of the time (laughs) which the scene that they do show us certainly seems to support that message anyway so annie pawns Lindsay off on Lori and tommy she just goes and drops the kid that she's being paid to babysit off Mm -hmm. with Lori, and pretty much says i gotta go pick up paul watch her for an hour Mm -hmm. which is like where does paul live what district you go to the same high school like or maybe she's counting for sex on the dime i don't know Annie enters her car, and I thought this was really interesting, too, and this kind of calls back to your urban legend about the guy in the back seat, but she enters the car and notices that the windows are fogged, and, like, the windows being fogged of teenagers' parking places and hooking up in the car, mm. windows being fogged are always telltale signs of sexy times happening in the car. But no, the windows are fogged because Michael's in the back fucking seat doing his labored breathing through his leather mask. That is really interesting. I feel like in every situation, now that you say that, I feel like in every situation where somebody is killed, there is an element of sex there. Welcome to the Horrors Podcast. I am so... (laughs) You guys, look, I am shook. Because, I mean, obviously, it's easy to, to find that when Michael Myers kills his older sister and she's topless, brushing her hair at the vanity, right? Of course, she's nude. That's an obvious element of sex. I'm going to get to Bob because yeah. I thought Okay, good. Bob. And then with Annie, I mean, she's wearing a shirt, right? But she's still clothed, like she's covered. So that obvious element isn't there. But what you said about the fog in the windows, the idea of Lover's Lane, making she out in a car. She still has no pants on. She does still have no pants on. We can't see that, though, but we can see this very intimate car which of course at that time i mean i don't know i just when i think of the 70s i think of people having sex in a car she even reaches out and granted it's to be like why are my windows fogged right she does reach out and she uses like four fingers to just kind of like trace the window down oh my a little too slow so i was like oh yes interesting i feel like whenever there's a scene of car sex and there's fog somebody there's always a handprint yes and right now i'm thinking that a titanic the titanic i mean of course way after halloween but that not a car that's a boat oh but no but they have sex in the car in on a the car boat. on a boat okay and i'm there's the the finger tracks the finger tracks mm-hmm. wow okay i i can see so clearly shay <laughs> i feel this is so interesting so annie realizes her windows are fogged because michael is heavy breathing in the back seat and essentially michael ends up strangling her from behind and slitting her throat in mm-hmm. the car mm-hmm. but i did want to point out that she doesn't die like a victim she's blowing the car horn she's yes trying to very get, she's, smart she's very resourceful mm-hmm. she is trying to wiggle her way out she's mm-hmm. slapping his arms i think that's something that horror movies can fall into right away where like people stop acting like people for the sake of them being cannon fodder and the kill count but no she's honking the horn she's trying to kick she's trying to turn her way out but she ends up getting her throat slit by michael that is probably why he does end up slitting her throat because she is putting up so much of a fight she essentially dies no pants on on the way to have sex with her boyfriend paul Mm -hmm. and in a steamy car there you have it folks there we go but the sexiest of ladies have yet to come Tommy is looking through the window and sees Michael Myers carry the newly dead limp body of Annie into the house. So we do kind of also see that image of her limp body in a man's arms, which I think is kind of sexual. So at this rate, enter Linda and Bob. A blue van. rolling down the street these two are drinking and driving they don't give a shit they don't give a 
fuck. They, <laughs> so they roll up to the Wallace residence because they essentially knew that the Wallace parents weren't going to be home for the rest of the evening. And that was the only place they could bone. So they had planned their evening around boning in the bedroom of the house of the child that their friend is babysitting for. That is quite the operation. It is an operation, but I'm thinking back to high school days where you had to get so creative about hooking up. (laughs) Because that's the thing, like a lot of people are in their parents' rooms. I mean, I'm gay. So having a girl in my room wasn't really ever that much of an issue. I mean, it turned into an issue once I came out. But (laughs) but to the degree of there's always kind of that rule of like nobody of the opposite sex in your bedroom with the Mm -hmm. door closed, Mm -hmm. at least or in your bedroom at all. So I did kind of appreciate, even though it seems like so outlandish, that like when you're young, those are the extents you go to just to be able to bone because you're not just going to be allowed to like do whatever you want in the family house. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. whip it out on the couch or whatever. Yeah. But that is what ends up happening. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Bob and Linda enter the Wallace residence. I did kind of like that he carried her through the door as if they were like a married couple. It was very cute. But then they get real sexual real quick. Mm -hmm. Um, They don't even care that all the lights are out and it's really weird that Annie's not there. And of course, later Lori tells them that Annie is going to get her boyfriend. So the darkness and the vacancy of the house is justified. But they don't really seem too worried about it at first, which I think is pretty crazy. Essentially, they start hooking up on the couch. They Mm -hmm. pause to call Lori. Lori informs them that Annie is nowhere to be found and then they end up going to the master bedroom and begin hooking up in some of the most disappointing sex that i've ever seen i mean i don't even know how to explain like it reminded me of looney tunes when the roadrunner is running down the street and you just see that like dust encompassing the feet of the roadrunner and it's just like all over the place that's what the blankets on the bed looked like the dust surrounding the roadrunner's feet he didn't even look like he was like properly on top of no her. and of course and granted you're acting right yes. like, and again the 70s movies allowed to be shown was very very different and much more conservative than it is now so i do recognize that but it was just like wild also very short-lived can we just say linda has big dick energy this entire <laughs> she does scene like she is i mean like <laughs> that's the thing in the sex scene they are not positioning her to be this gentle recipient. No, she's having a fucking ball. She's mm-hmm. moaning. She's yelling. Mm-hmm. Um, that sex does not last long either. But mm-hmm. either way, they roll over. She lights up a cigarette and she turns to her boyfriend's like, go get me a beer. That I was like, <sighs> what a woman. I mean, a child. But what a woman. She knows what she wants. She knows she can have it. She has him doing her bidding. It's incredible. Yeah. I think he even says at one point, he was like, I thought you were going to go get me one. And she like scoffs at him. (laughs) She absolutely has him by the balls. I love that. Um, Mm -hmm. Such a good scene. So Bob gets up to go downstairs and get more beer out of the refrigerator. He's hearing some bumps in the night and he's like looking around and he thinks Linda's messing with him. And he's looking around, looking around. Michael comes out of fucking nowhere, pins him against the wall, lifts him off of his feet. Mm -hmm. in a chokehold stabs him through the chest and bob dies with the blade going through him and he is being held up by this butcher knife goes through him and into the wall with enough force to hold his feet off of the ground insane very powerful can we just say how kinky it is because think about you have (laughs) michael myers sexually repressed michael myers Mm -hmm. presumably pinning another man against the wall choking him putting his hands around his throat very intimate right also, like I think, you don't see men choking men out very no often. and also lifting him off the ground i feel like it feminizes bob and of course michael myers is shown to have extreme strength throughout the film but bob is even though he's young he's built he's like a, yeah he's, a big, he's dude. a big dude right but to be lifted off the ground like perhaps we would see a woman like when bob carried linda into the house when michael myers carried annie around from the back garage and into the house like we have only seen him carrying women now we see him lifting this big dude up off the ground pinning him to the wall essentially 
if you look at the idea of a knife, pretty much everything's a phallus, right? Like mm-hmm. everything's a dick. Everything that could be straight and pointy is a dick. So like the fact that Michael, you know, uses his big knife to... <laughs> the way you just looked at me. But, <laughs> but that's essentially the thing is Michael stabs him. And that's a very intimate way for a man to kill another man. Like if you were to think to every other movie that you've seen and you're seeing a man kill another man, most often it's like an execution. It's a gunshot. It's an explosion. It's something more manly something that allows that man to die with his dignity a little bit right but stabbing like a man stabbing another man with such a force that he's off the ground mm-hmm. before he got choked out you know he right. took his breath away <laughs> oh my gosh you could say <laughs> oh so captivating oh that michael oh, oh. he tickles me so <laughs> so we return to linda smoking a cigarette upstairs she is angry that her beer is not in her hand she is filing her nails (laughs) yes she is just like annoyed (laughs) and michael masquerading as bob appears at the threshold of the door michael has a sheet over him with bob's glasses on over the sheet so it pretty much looks like a ghost with glasses and linda thinks that this is bob messing around and she asks not once not twice but thrice where is my beer (laughs) (laughs) and then she gets pissed She's like, fine, fine, then I'm just not going to talk to you anymore. Fine. So she gets up and she goes to call Lori Mm. because she's like, Bob's being dumb. But essentially, Lori picks up the phone. And when Lori picks up the phone, Michael comes from behind, takes the telephone cord and starts choking Linda out with it. But it doesn't sound like Linda's in danger. It sounds like she is having sex. And that's what Lori thinks at first. She's like, oh... Or not really, but like, are you playing a trick on me? You're just acting silly. That's the thing. And I don't know if that was, I'm going to guess it was intentional, but it essentially sounds like Linda is reaching an orgasm. And two, Michael's breathing is very loud in this scene. Mm, like he mm-hmm. he is has very labored breathing. He is struggling to choke her out. So when you flash back to Lori, who's hearing it over the phone, it does sound like right. it's just Linda and Bob having sex. Right. And also the fact, you know, Lori knew they were together. She knew that that was their aim, right? Take advantage of the night in this random house that their friend is babysitting in. Weird, though. Linda is also topless. Yes. Oh, how did we forget to mention that? Well, I also forgot to mention that when Bob, quote unquote, is at the threshold of the door and Linda's like, oh, like, where's my beer? Linda flashes him and is just like, yeah oh, I'm sorry, like, is this, is this what you want? Is this Mm going to make you give me my beer? So she is playing coy and she is like using her sexuality to just kind of joke around and feel powerful. Linda is choked out and dies half naked, pretty much in the same way Judith does. That like, that's kind of like the last shot is very fixated on her chest, Mm -hmm. very fixated on her beauty. Mm -hmm. So at this point, the phone call alarms Lori enough where she is going to go across the street and check things out. And like you said earlier, her intentions are twofold. We might think, okay, she's concerned. Annie isn't back yet. All the lights are out. Linda just gave me this strange phone call. So it could be, hey, I'm worried. What the heck is going on? At this point, the kids are in bed. But it could also be that, oh, wow, I just got this phone call and my friends are like pranking me and I'm here with these two eight-year-olds. Mm-hmm. So this begins what one would call the final girl's circuit where essentially Lori, the pure virginal one who's now made it to the end has to go around and discover the bodies of her dead friends. And all three happen very quickly. Oh yeah. They all happen at once. She comes upon the master bedroom and sees the headstone of Judith Myers as kind of like the headboard of the bed with Annie sprawled out on top of the bed, her dead body. She turns around to leave and Bob's body flies down from the ceiling somewhere. I don't know where the mechanics of this was. Like as though he was, you know when you hang upside down on the monkey bars and Mm -hmm. you like can swing with your knees Mm -hmm. over the bar? It looked like he was like that on like a closet bar. But I don't know. I didn't quite see it because that was the time I screamed and instinctively looked away because it was just kind of came out of nowhere. But that's kind of what it looked like to me. Yeah, so Bob flies down from this closet or whatever and then... (laughs) Does Lori open a closet? It and kind then- of, the wardrobe door just kind of ee, opens and Linda was there kind of dead and also a little bit cross-eyed, which I thought was interesting. Yes. Yeah, so not only is Michael Myers an esteemed killer, he's also Macaulay Culkin, 
evidently because he's just setting these bodies up to like reveal themselves <laughs> in some weird ass with these weird ass gizmos and contraptions <laughs> yeah. and like what the hell is this home alone five it like, does what's seem going very on? much like everything is on a timer well for bob and linda at least and i do want to say i am surprised that annie was the one sprawled out on the bed and not linda because linda's death resembled judith's the most and i think that they looked the most alike so i'm surprised that linda wasn't on the bed instead of annie yeah i remember saying that to you too i was like is that linda and you're like no that's annie and i yeah i don't know what the significance of annie being on the bed as opposed to Linda being on the bed truly was because you're right in the manners in which they died Linda was definitely more in line with Judith in terms of like their sexual activity and Mm -hmm. you know Michael's rage toward that sexual activity I don't know if it was just like in order of appearance (laughs) (laughs) yeah because it did yeah it was revealed as such so that could be it Lori is stabbed in the arm and her backing away from the stab sends her topsy-turvy over the top of the stairs. She like falls down an entire flight and messes her leg up to where she starts running around outside screaming, help me, help me, help me. She runs up to a door to get help and they turn the lights out on her Mm. because there was a whole big side plot with Loomis earlier where pretty much the sheriff was like everyone plays jokes on Halloween so I can't be chasing every call that we get tonight because so many of them end up being pranks Mm -hmm. Lori ends up running back across the street getting inside in the nick of time and then the rest of this becomes Lori taking care of the kids I think she's not protecting herself anymore because I don't think she realizes that Michael is after her and at this point we don't really know that he's really after Lori Michael, of course, finds his way in the house and tries to stab Lori from behind. Misses. He hits the couch. And then Lori grabs a knitting needle and stabs this fucker in the neck and he goes down. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I think we had different thoughts. Yeah, about we the knitting did. Needle. So my immediate thought was, first of all, a knitting needle size wise, it was a little bit laughable. You know, he had this huge freaking knife and she comes back with a really thin knitting needle. So to me, there was kind of like some size comedy there. Also, there was in my head noted right away the sort of like stigma around knitting that it's sort of like a wholesome elderly lady lady pastime. And it to me seemed like it was paying homage to her wholesomeness. The first thing she can grab is in a knife it's a knitting needle from the knitting that she brought over to the house to babysit. So that's kind of what I was noticing there. Michael goes down and then Lori just still has to leave the knife in the couch. I mean, why? I don't know. I don't you know. You got very frustrated I, with this. Yes. And I said this before, I think in our very first episode or our second or whatever, where I said that I get so fucking frustrated when I watch horror and I... As much as I get scared and as much as I cry (laughs) often, especially with newer films, and as much as I am emotionally distraught, part of that being distraught is being so angry. And I think that I'm not as angry with newer films. I think there's a lot more that goes into the storyline and the character development and what the characters do when they're faced with these situations. But Laurie was making me so upset as if she was too pure to react in a way that would make sense for somebody who's trying to survive so she ends up going upstairs to comfort the kids and is like was that the boogeyman and then she's just like yeah but we're all right now of course it's not all right he is sulking up the steps behind them oh my god they and this is where i think at this point michael could have gone either way and i think this is where it becomes obvious that he is after Lori because mm-hmm. the kids and Lori are both locked in different closets mm. in the same room. Mm-hmm. And granted, you don't hear the kids, but part of me thinks that like the kids would have been, you know, whining mm. or crying or something where Lori, you know, is keeping quiet. And granted, Lori's in a closet that has the slats. the slats in them. So you could kind of see in if you want to. But Michael ends up attacking that closet and She kind of spends a little bit cowering in the corner, but then she ends up grabbing a metal clothes hanger, Mm -hmm. unfurling the clothes hanger, and then stabbing him in the eye Mm. with the wire of the clothes hanger. Which, what a shot, by the way. How do you... 
oh. impeccable shot. Have you ever tried to to? No, I have not tried to stab somebody no. in the eye with. A- <laughs> I feel like there have been a couple times I've tried. Well, I know there have been a couple times I've tried to maneuver a wire hanger, whether it was to make something or have ever told craft. And it's hard to do it. It, It's really hard. So good for her. I mean, she really, she really killed it on that one. No pun intended. (laughs) Yeah. Also, the speed in which she was able to do so was super fucking comical because (laughs) side tangent. I had, I had a terrible car in undergrad and grad school and by the time it got to grad school it wasn't loving me no more and it had gotten to the point where the muffler of my car was dragging on the ground Mm. it had detached itself from the bottom of my vehicle nice so i get to grad school the one day i was commuting from my hometown at that point which was about an hour drive and i call my dad because that's what you do and i'm just like dad what's going on like what do i do and he's like do you have any wire in your car i'm like yes dad of all the things that i have sitting in my trunk i have industrial grade metal wire hanging out and of course no i fucking don't but then he's like do you have a clothes hanger oh and i ended up having to go looking around campus for someone who had a Wait, metal clothes hanger i gave you the metal clothes hanger didn't i you ended up giving me one in case there was a rainy day, but not for the one that I needed. I do remember I ended up calling you saying like, hey, do you have one? And then you ended up finding one later. I ended up finding one in like a closet in my office at work. All of this to say that Lori unfurls this metal clothes hanger like it's a twisty tie on a loaf of bread. No, this shit takes fucking muscle strength to do like it i think i had to like hand it over to one of my classmates and be like can you fucking handle this because it's that adrenaline but yeah you could argue it's the adrenaline or you could argue it's props but either way (laughs) lori does this a little too damn fast for my liking but either way she does it she sticks him in the eye he goes down again guess who still leaves the knife in his fucking possession well she doesn't she stab him Yes, and then he drops the knife. She gets him in the eye, and then she stabs him in the chest. Yeah, she drops the knife. She's so distraught. She drops the knife. She gets the kids again. Go run to the neighbor's house. Tell them to call 911, whatever. And then so they go, and they run off screaming. She gets the kids out of the house, and then she kind of slumps in defeat. You could tell that she's just really tired, that she's traumatized, obviously. And again, Michael sits up Ew. and <gasps> comes at her from behind. I can picture it. But this is where... From the fucking rafters, Loomis comes out of fucking nowhere, shoots him six times, mm-hmm. and he falls off of the master bedroom's balcony. But Lori, that's the thing, and this is why I appreciate that she is one of the first final girls, and I appreciate that part of the trope is the final girl either is rescued or ends up fending the killer off herself. And I do like that if you look at trends in horror, it tends to lean to the latter as time goes on. It usually ends up being the final girl is the one to vanquish. But she goes from this capable and resilient woman to the second that Loomis gets there, the second when there mm. she is in the presence of a man, she becomes a, like a yeah. blubbering, useless individual and granted that's to say like anyone who's in that situation is traumatized at this point right Right. like but my thing is like she had the knife that's the thing mm -hmm. she had the knife she dropped it she kept leaving the knife like she kept leaving that power that big dick energy that phallus linda wouldn't have left the knife no and neither would annie annie fighting back annie honking the horn annie kicking and screaming right Mm mm-hmm I don't know. I felt frustrated because I just, I was like, no, I feel like if you had that knife in this situation, you would stab and you wouldn't stop stabbing or you would run out of the house with those kids. I mean, I guess her leg was hurt and they made a point to make sure the audience understood that and knew that, but I don't know. And of course, I've never been chased by a man named Michael Myers wearing a mask on a Halloween night when I just wanted to babysit my these kids and make some bank, right? I've never had this experience, but it just doesn't seem like it matches up. Well, there's actually a quote by John Carpenter that I wanted to read because I found it super interesting that kind of argues against what you just said in terms of Jamie Lee Curtis not being ferocious enough. But John Carpenter quotes... The critics completely missed the boat here, I think, because if you turn it around, the one girl who is the most sexually uptight just keeps stabbing this guy with a long knife. She's the most sexually frustrated. She's the one that killed him, not because she's a virgin, but because all that repressed energy starts coming out. She uses all of those phallic symbols on the guy. She and the killer have a certain link, sexual repression. 
Hmm. So that's the thing. Cause if you think about it, she uses like three different weapons of destruction. She uses True. the knitting needle. She uses at this point, the clothes hanger, which in itself is kind of like a symbol of feminist history, mm-hmm. not necessarily feminist history, but of women's history in right. terms of a very dark, a very dark chapter, corner, corner of mm-hmm. um, women's reproductive non-rights. Mm-hmm. And then eventually the knife. So if you think about how many people succeeded in stabbing Michael Myers throughout the movie, Jamie Lee Curtis is the only one. That's true. But even if you look at the way that Michael kills everybody else, he stabs Mm -hmm. Bob, Mm -hmm. but only once. Mm -hmm. And he slits Annie's throat and then he just strangles Linda. Right. So like you don't really see him getting stabby McStabberson with anybody. That's a good point. If you look at the person who is stabbed the most in the movie... Well, I mean, if you're not counting attempted stabs, attempted stabs, and if you're not counting the guy from the beginning who Michael ends up stealing his outfit from, because you don't really know how he dies. The two people that are stabbing the most, because if you count Judith in the beginning, it's Michael Mm -hmm. and Lori are both the most presumably sexually frustrated because Michael's been in a psychiatric facility for 15 years where I'm assuming he hasn't been sexually active and Lori, who we know has not been. And that's such a good point. And yeah, Lori does stab him a bunch of times. And there is that. A theme of sexual repression there but i feel like the way laurie's final girl character plays out she still maintains this innocence this helplessness even after she goes through all that kind of like you said when loomis comes on the scene she's all tears not saying that she doesn't get to break down i'm sure anybody would but i don't know there's just something about it that feels like even when she is defending herself even when she is giving into her instinct to survive it still feels guarded Like, she will not hold on to the knife. She lets it go. She keeps letting it go. As if she... I feel like she almost trusts the situation too early, too easily. And that's why I kind of appreciate the 2018 sequel to the original. Because if you see what Jamie Lee Curtis is doing in that movie, she's got a fucking arsenal. She's got a bunker. She's got all the different artillery. So she's never going to drop the knife again. I love that. I And of course, I haven't seen that. I want to see that now i would like to see some of these other movies to see where the story goes but so you did some looking up about the boogeyman so what did you find so i was curious about the boogeyman because i've heard of the boogeyman just kind of as a generic monster type figure in my own childhood but it came up a lot of times in the movie tommy mentioning the boogeyman what's her face mentioning the boogeyman Lindsay, and of course Lori herself. So I looked at the boogeyman. And so the boogeyman was established somewhere in the 16th century. The boogeyman has no specific appearance and conceptions vary drastically by household and culture, but it is most commonly depicted as a masculine or androgynous monster that punishes children for misbehavior. So I thought this was very interesting because you had read a quote from Carpenter that this wasn't necessarily a commentary on moral behavior. It was just kind of more commentary on what teenagers were doing. But I do think that intrinsically, I don't think he could write just what teenagers were doing without that implicit sense of morality without that sense of what was right and what was wrong for a teenager to be doing. If nothing else, it's Michael's morality, Michael's definition of morality, because he makes the line very clear that he at least doesn't like sex because his first kill, he is six and and he is exposed to his sister being sexually active. So if it's not society's version, if John Carpenter is saying, well, yeah, that's just what teens do and and to a degree that's true he makes it clear that in michael's mind these behaviors or at least the things that are going to create the conditions for sex are punishable the behavior so misbehavior that the boogeyman might intervene with may vary from generation to generation so for the kids in the film we have drinking we have smoking cigarettes and weed we have having sex and every teen who is killed is killed after participating in either one or more of these behaviors, sex, drinking, smoking. We don't see Annie doing anything other than kind of engaging in promiscuous activities, but we see her smoking earlier in in the movie. But you also see Lori smoking and she survives. There's a difference between the way that they smoke, the ease in which they smoke, the experience in which they kind of carry out these actions. And I think that that is a good point, right? And Lori, she does smoke and she does also get chased. So there is that boogeyman tendency there, maybe correcting that behavior, right? Yeah. Instead of dying, she just gets traumatized. That's the slap on the wrist, I guess. Poor thing. But anyway, so I thought that that was interesting that the boogeyman is literally this figure 
used to scare kids out of participating in quote-unquote immoral or incorrect behavior. That's the thing, too, because he isn't even really referred to as Michael Myers throughout this movie. The only person that's really referring to him in any way as Michael Myers is Dr. Loomis because he knows him as his psychiatric patient. But even then, he's not even really relying on that. People are either calling him the boogeyman or the shape. Mm -hmm. And also the supernatural tendencies that you pointed out, that he does disappear, that he does move with ease around the neighborhood. I think also feeds into this sort of mythological appearance, this mythological impact. I mean, and that's the thing. If you continue to watch the series, he gets some weird cultish backstory where he is kind of proven to be supernatural at some Hmm. point. So there's that. I mean, it's not really celebrated as one of its many sequels. But either way, (laughs) it's not incorrect to assume that there is some supernatural quality about him because the movie ends with him getting shot six times and then disappearing exactly the only other thing i'll add to is the way that this was shot was pretty revolutionary for both i think just the genre and film in general there were a lot of like uninterrupted takes and if you think about it a lot of the movie you know this thought came from men women and chainsaws by carol clover so i'm not taking credit for this but a lot of the way that Halloween was shot was very voyeuristic. If you think about it, it's a lot of looking through windows. So true. It's mm-hmm. a lot of just like peeping Tom, seeing mm-hmm. from the outside. You don't necessarily know whose point of view you're taking, but at many times we are forced to take Michael's point of view because that's the only point of view that we're given. So we are almost complicit in this stalking, in this hunting, almost. Very interesting. So that was Halloween. Yeah. There is so much here even before tonight i didn't know that our conversation would last this long very interesting i feel like it was a really good first film to watch together and explore because it did impact horror so much and we can still see it it today also for your sake it's like one of the least glorious and scary slashers so it's only gonna get worse from here easing into it easing into it I am so scared. I, we have a couple of things planned and Shay has already been kind of getting me mentally prepped for what those films will entail. So yes, we Oy. are kind of working our way up based on not the quality of the movie per se, but how much I think it is going to upset. <laughs> yeah, she, oh my God, she needs to keep me prepped and oh gosh, whatever, but we'll see. Yeah. If you're listening, we appreciate you. We invite you to share your own experiences. If you have opinions on Halloween, what your favorite slasher is, you can share them at our Gmail at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com. Yep. And that's horrors with a W. With a WH. And then, of course, you can also find us on Instagram at the same. So the horrors podcast. Yeah. Follow us. See what's up. Send us your stories. Send us your experiences. Yes. Be our friend. Whoever is listening, we appreciate it just because we're still testing this out and we're still at this rate. We haven't even really released anything yet when we're recording this. So this is all just a real shot in the dark. So if we even have one person that's listening to us that doesn't know either of us personally, (laughs) then we consider that a win. That's pretty freaking cool. All right. Until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye. (laughs) 